0: Welcome to Literary Quest, a podcast hosted by us, Vicki and Marissa, where we discuss our favorite and fantasy fiction, and hopefully can direct you in your quest to find your
1: next great read. Welcome to literary quest this week we're discussing shadow of night by Deborah Harkness we're also really excited we have a guest this week joining us today is Nathan from the podcast phantom galaxy Uh, Nathan can you tell us a little bit about your podcast.
2: Sure. And hey, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really uh, excited to be here and to talk about this specific book. I messed up because I was supposed to join you last week for the first one and somehow had Sunday in my mind until uh, Vicki says, yeah, I think it's happening right now. <laughs> so uh, yeah, from Phantom Galaxy podcast, which is a podcast that covers science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And it's uh I have a background as a film critic. I was a film critic for many years and part of the DC Film Critics Society. And I primarily kind of dealt with movies, but I also my first love was books and still is. And so we cover books and movies and television and everything like that uh, over there at Phantom Galaxy. My co-host is Bill Van Vagel, and we recently had Marissa and Vicky on. Uh, That episode will be coming out probably a uh shortly after the one you're hearing right now and uh, we we talked about books and 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 novels and various things over there and uh, a little bit about movies i don't think a ton but um yeah that's uh, you can find it at uh phantom galaxy on facebook and on twitter and a uh, phantom galaxy at podbean.com and it's pretty much where most of uh where you can find your podcasts apple podcasts and places mm-hmm. like that so yeah uh would love any of your uh listeners to come over and, and check us out and like i say we're we're starting a, an actual website where the the uh, podcast will be uh, hosted, and we're also going to probably start having uh, mini reviews, capsule written reviews, and things like that over there as well. So yeah, um, check us out.
1: Great. Yeah, his podcast is awesome, so everyone should check it out. Um, I'm going to start with our characters and locations this week. So a bunch of these characters are actual historical figures, so that's exciting. Um, the School of Night is a group of radicals, philosophers, and free thinkers. Uh, the group's made up of Thomas Harriet, Christopher Marlowe, George Chapman, Walter Raleigh, and Matthew Royden. In this book, Matthew Royden is Diana's Matthew. The group holds um, heretical opinions. They dislike the corrupt court of Queen Elizabeth. In our book, the way Deborah Hartness wrote them, um, Christopher Marlowe is a demon. He is, in real life, a famous playwright and poet. He has romantic feelings for Matthew and immediately dislikes Diana, which he is incredibly disappointed by because she admired him greatly. George Chapman is a writer and poet. He knows that Matthew is a vampire, but is not a vampire demon or witch. Thomas Harriet is a demon and an astronomer. Henry Percy is Lord of Northumberland and an alchemist. Walter Raleigh is a poet, politician, and explorer. We have some new vampires in this um, book. We have Pierre and Francois, Matthew's servants. They're both vampires and aware that he is a de Clermont. Gallo Glass, he provides us some comic relief in this book. He's Matthew's nephew and friend. He's part of the Order of Lazarus. He is Scottish. He refuses to set foot in France as his father was killed there. Hancock, Matthew's friend and another uh, member of the Order of Lazarus. Philippe de Clermont, Matthew's father. In the first book, we learned that he was tortured by Nazis in World War II, but in this book he's trying to keep France from falling apart. He is well known everywhere and because of him being in the de Clermont family, um, provides significant protection. Father Hubbard. He is a vampire who rules over the vampires, witches, and demons in London. He is a former priest and major trouble in this book. He takes in lost souls to protect them. And in return, they let him taste their blood so he knows all of their secrets. He's also considered mad by several people. We meet Louisa de Clermont, Matthew's sister. Um, She is also prone to madness and blood rage. There are some new witches as well. We meet Widow uh, Beaton, a local witch called in to help Diana, but she refuses to help. Annie is a 14 year old witch sent by Father Hubbard to help Diana. She lives with Matthew and Diana, and they take care of her the same way they take care of Jack. Uh, we meet, there are several witches who help Diana learn her magic. Susanna Norman, um, she's Annie's aunt. She's a powerful witch, and she helps Diana uncover her powers. Goody Alsop is a weaver, and she helps Diana as well. Marjorie Cooper is an earth witch. Elizabeth Jackson is a water witch and Catherine Streeter is a fire witch. We've got some humans as well. Jack, he's an orphan that Matthew and Diana meet when he tries to pickpocket them. They essentially adopt him and provide education to him. He's around seven years old. Mary Sidney, she's the Countess of Pembroke. She becomes Diana's friend as they bond over alchemy. She is a brilliant scientist. Dr. John Dee, an alchemist who originally had the Ashmole 782, but it was stolen by his assistant, Edward Kelly. That brings us to Edward Kelly, an alchemist. um, He's attempting to make a philosopher's stone and is basically kept prisoner by Emperor Rudolph. We get to meet Queen Elizabeth. She is the Queen of England. Matthew Matthew works for her as a spy. He was one of her favorites and she's displeased that he married without her permission. There is the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf. He is an Austrian Archduke, King of Hungary, Croatia, and Bohemia, and Margrave of Moravia. He has, um, he has the Ashmole 782. He is attracted to, to Diana and flirts with her quite a bit, much to Diana and Matthew's dismay. However, they're able to use that against him in order to see the manuscript. We go to several new places. There's the Blackfriars. It's a town right outside of London and Prague. Um, It's the country where Diana and Matthew go to find the Ashmole 782. All right, Marissa, you wanna
0: do our plot? I do wanna do our plot. So, Shadow of Night begins right where we left off with our main characters in A Discovery of Witches with Matthew and Diana, who have time walked to England in 1590 at the very beginning of November, and they land in a heap in Matthew's home at the old lodge in Woodstock. They have barely gotten their bearings with landing in the past when Matthew's best friend at the time, Christopher Marlowe, nicknamed Kit for short, um, finds them, exclaiming his surprise at seeing Matthew as he was told that Matt was out of town. Kit, it seems, is in love with Matthew, and when Matthew declares that Diana is his wife, Kit's affection for Matthew is tempered with disdain for Diana. So Diana is already off to a rocky start in the past. Matthew's servants, Pierre and Francois, recognizing that something is amiss with their master, instantly fall into their roles to serve their master and their new mistress, and Diana is introduced to the rest of Matthew's friends. Henry Percy, Sir Walter Raleigh, George Chapman, Thomas Harriet, who make up the School of Night. With the exception of Kit, they're all welcoming and friendly to Diana. However, she struggles with adjusting to life in the past. Not helping matters. Matthew also falls into some of his own habits, at times ignoring or belittling Diana's concerns or opinions. When they seek out the help of a local witch, Widow Beaton, to begin training Diana, in understanding her magic, Widow Beaton meets them with hostility. At first, stating that Diana has very little power when she is unable to perform a sim- to, to perform simple magic, and then turning on her when Diana, whose magic has evolved since coming to the past, when she touches a quince and it instantly goes from fresh to rotten, essentially drained of its life force. 1590 is a dangerous time for witches at the witch hunt, as the witch hunts have begun in Scotland, and soon Diana comes under scrutiny from the local clergy after Widow Beaton claims to have been affected by Diana's magic. Also not helping matters is the fact that Kit is also spreading word of Diana's strangeness. One night at the Old Lodge, Matthew's nephew, Galaglass, and his companion, Hancock, arrive shocked to see Matthew as they believed he was missing. They had been traveling with him to Chester, only to discover that he was suddenly gone. The clergyman and two Woodstock locals arrive to question Diana about about witchcraft, and while the combined efforts of Matthew, the school of night, and Matthew's vampiric companions are able to scare off the villagers for now, they won't stay gone for long. The same evening, Matthew receives a summons from his father, Philippe de Claremont, demanding that Matthew appear at Septor with a specific coin in hand to authenticate that he is alive. With Galaglass' help, Diana and Matthew make their way to France. In the short time that Diana has been in 1590, she has come to understand that there is so much that Matthew has kept from her about his past, including the fact that he is a member of the congregation in 1590, as well as a spy for Queen Elizabeth I. This creates tension in an already tense relationship, and this only worsens with their first encounter with Matthew's father, Philippe, who declares that Matthew and Diana are not truly married or mated as they have not consummated their relationship or been married in the proper way. Matthew asks Philippe to to offer Diana the protection of the order of Lazarus, and though he refuses initially, he concedes but states that Matthew and Diana will not be sharing a bedchamber since they aren't properly married. Matthew and Philippe continue to clash in their interactions, and Philippe tasks Diana with managing the household affairs of Sceptor. Matthew grows more irritable and distant each day, and with Philippe's guidance, Diana discovers Matthew in a church in the local village where she discovers him still heavily in his grief over the loss of his son, Lucas, so many years ago. It turns out it is Lucas's birthday. Matthew shares with Diana the loss that he still feels for his son, his wife, Blanca, the guilt that he felt each time she miscarried, the grief that drove him to attempt taking his own life, as well as his feelings of inadequacy in his relationship with Philippe, feeling like his father despises him. And the enormous guilt that he feels over being the one to end philippe's life in an act of mercy after he has been captured and tortured beyond sanity by the witches and nazis during world war ii diana later finds philippe and matthew sparring with weapons in the hay barn where philippe drives matthew to the point of blood rage philippe having realized that he he is no longer alive in the future believes that matthew's blood rage was his ultimate cause of death and in a cathartic moment he absolves matthew of whatever harm he may have done and makes diana his blood sworn daughter by marking her forehead with his blood making diana an official member of the claremont family diana and matthew are officially wed and finally consummate their bond Near the end of the winter holiday season, Matthew and Diana make quick arrangements to return to England after Philippe receives word that a group of witches is coming to Septor to investigate the disappearance of a witch called Champier, who Diana killed while he was visiting Septor after he attempted to forcefully enter her mind to understand her magic and remove her memories. Matthew and Diana say a difficult goodbye to Philippe and head to London. So they make their way to the Blackfriars in London, to Matthew's home at the Heart and Crown. And Matthew and Diana realize shortly after arriving that she is pregnant. Matthew and Henry Percy introduce Diana to Mary Sidney, the Countess of Pembroke and Henry's sister. And she and Diana develop a fast friendship, bonding over their mutual interest in alchemy. And Diana begins to spend more time with her in her lab, working on their her alchemical experiments. However, Diana, frustrated with her very protective vampires, keeping local witches away and thus preventing her from finding a magical teacher, takes matters into her own hands by venturing into town to be seen. She encounters a a witch who runs an apothecary's shop, which seems fortuitous at first, but becomes concerning when she and Matthew are summoned to see Father Hubbard, a vampire who runs the Creatures of London, offering protection for fealty. Not surprisingly, he and Matthew are not on good terms, and Hubbard is insulted that Matthew brought a new witch into his territory without immediately introducing her to him. Diana is able to invoke the protection of the De Claremont family to avoid certain loyalty to Hubbard by allowing him to take blood from her neck, and Hubbard sends a young witch named Annie to Diana, who has an aunt, Susanna Norman, who is a witch and may be able to help her in her magical training. Through Susanna, she meets a fellow witch named Giddy Alsop, a weaver, who reveals to Diana that she is also a weaver, a type of witch of immense power who is able to weave spells. With the help of Giddy, Susanna, and several other witches, Diana is able to begin developing an understanding of her magic. Diana also takes on the care of a young child named Jack who attempted to steal from Matthew and nearly lost an ear in the process. Matthew, frustrated with the persecution, torture, and death that the witches of Scotland are facing, attempts to change the past to save the witches and grows distant from Diana when his efforts are thwarted. This is exacerbated when, Diana's, when Diana experiences a miscarriage early in her pregnancy. Matthew's friend, George Chapman, who had been tasked with discovering any whispers or word regarding Ashmole 782, the book that they went to the past to find, finally has some good news. The book may be part of a library of a man called Dr. D. Matthew and company go to D's library, but realize that it is not Ashmole 782 that he possesses, but another book that was swapped by his assistant, Edward Kelly, when they visited Prague. It seems Kelly has stolen the book and is now working for Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor, to create the Philosopher's Stone. When, Elizabeth, when Queen Elizabeth discovers this, she demands that Matthew go to Prague to retrieve Edward Kelly and thereby the ability to make the Philosopher's Stone, which would grant her immortality. And so Matthew, Diana, and company continue on to Prague in search of Ashmole 782. While in Prague, she also, Diana is also able to meet with some of the residents in a Jewish community in the area, including a fellow witch who is also a weaver. Her and Matthew's conflict eventually comes to a head when she confronts him, and he reveals how much he has struggled with resisting the part of himself that wants to drink her blood. She allows Matthew to drink from her heart vein, which will allow him to see all of her secrets, and she uses her magic to connect with him so that he can share his secrets with her as well. This turns out to be a turning point in their relationship. Diana eventually finagles her way into seeing Ashmole 782, which is completely intact at this point. And she and Matthew come to the shocking realization that every part of the book is made of creatures from the sheets of paper to the binding to the ink. And it is able to communicate with creatures, which has basically driven Edward Kelly mad. The book is still in possession of the emperor at this point, but Matthew is able to steal it and they make a speedy escape to London. On their return trip to London, Diana realizes that she is pregnant again. While Matthew attempts to smooth things over with Queen Elizabeth after he fails to procure Edward Kelly, Diana leaves the castle with Kit, who takes her to a stadium where jousting matches are held. Louisa de Claremont arrives, and it becomes apparent that Kit has convinced her that Diana has be- bewitched Matthew, and they've decided that they must kill her to free Matthew. So it turns out that Kit still hates Diana. They tie her up. And though she is injured in the process, she is able to free herself and use magic to detain Kit and Louisa. There aren't words to describe Matthew's fury. And shortly after, with a warning from Father Hubbard, Diana discovers that Matthew has held them captive in an asylum and has been torturing them. She pleads with him to come back to her, to release the blood rage and to control himself, and he does. And things begin to smooth out in their lives again. And then one day when Matthew and Diana are walking, they discover someone that they did not expect to see in London in 1591. To discover who they meet what actually happens with Ashmole 782, and if Diana will be able to use her magic to get her and Matthew back to the future, to the present day, you must read the book or keep listening because spoilers abound. So this is your spoiler warning if you don't like them you might stop here and pick up the book. Or if you love spoilers like me, keep reading or keep listening. My bad. Keep listening.
1: So I think this is a book we've all read once now. This was a reread for everyone. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, Nathan, how did you like the book?
2: I really, I really liked it the first time I, This last time, because I basically had the the one week to read it, and honestly, it was where I could place it in the evening in in between everything else going on. Uh, It was a bit more of a whirlwind this time because it is is a very dense book. I remember that the first time I read it, um, I, I read it shortly after it first came out. So, you know, the reviews at the time. The initial reviews were kind of a little bit mixed, my memory was. You know, there were people that were like, oh, it's so much slower, or it's almost there's too many characters and things like that. And honestly, the other aspect was at the very end of Discovery of Witches, of course, they have that moment where you've introduced time travel. And uh, I don't know if it's as prevalent these days, but certainly like in the 90s, if you were someone who was reading science fiction and fantasy, there was that worry that they were going to do one or two things with your fantasy novel they were either going to time travel and (laughs) travel back in time or they were going to if they lived in a completely made-up fantasy world they were going to come out of that world and come to like the quote-unquote real world like our world you know Mm -hmm. I remember the second dark tower book by Stephen King does that and it happens you know when it happens you're sort of thinking oh boy here we go (laughs) is this going to be fish out of water is this fantasy Mm -hmm. crocodile dundee what are we getting here And I've read plenty of fantasy books that don't do it very well. You know that the excuse to time travel is because they want to like flesh out a backstory, or they want to take characters to meet uh, people without trying to. They want to they want to unveil something from the past, but they really don't know how to do it any other way than kind of send people on an entire book journey into the past. Which, at you know the description you just gave, sounds like that's exactly what's happening. Uh, the difference between what happens in this book and and uh, some of the, the books where maybe it isn't done as well, is it's very clear, like once you start reading it, that this is almost, I, I feel like in Deborah Harkness's mind, this is where the meat of the story always existed, uh, or, or her kind of passion for the story existed. Not that there wasn't a lot of it in the first book, but that whole element of the sort of academia of hey we're looking you know most of the goal of the novel is we have to find this book you know we have to find this manuscript it's about learning and education and things like that but it's you know it's also got vampires and witches and romance and and the, you know all these uh, subterfuge that's going on so when you get to this and it's not surprising you know that that deborah harkness wrote some actual uh historical nonfiction prior to this about the science you know the Mm -hmm. kind of rise of science in Victorian society and things like that and dealing with a lot of the characters she brings in here so I loved this book and in fact I actually like this book better than the first one even though it certainly is slower and I think it's because of how there's no useless detail in this book there's no useless character in this book you 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 know there is that kind of odd thing where I kind of call it the, the the kind of Star Wars conundrum where you meet a character and they know everybody important
1: mm-hmm. that
2: that's necessary to the story. Now, you know, Matthew knows every important historical superstar
1: mm-hmm. at
2: the point, you know, you know, he's, he's hanging out with Christopher Marlowe and Queen Elizabeth and Sir Walter Riley and all these other people. And he, you know, he's in the orbit of everybody and that's okay. You can kind of forgive that and move on uh it's it's not a problem but it's it's one of the things that has to happen or for her to explore this but what's interesting is how well she writes all of the historical pieces so that they they feel like uh fresh living characters to the point that if you aren't really I mean exceedingly like you almost have to be a historian to figure out which of these people you know the Mm -hmm. obvious ones that we know about but there are more of these people that were real than are not, you know. Uh, Suzanne, for example, is a, was a real is based off of a real midwife that ended up in one of her, her historical uh, nonfiction books, you know. But she's written in such a way, alongside all the fictional characters, it's so it's so deftly woven together. It's hard to tell, and that's what's interesting. This story doesn't feel like it's a oh, you know. In these other books, it's almost like someone decided to take a break. It's like let's take a break from the plot and have our characters go back in time and that's not what's happening here you know they flesh Matthew's story out but it isn't just it isn't just showing us what happened with him it's giving us a chance to sort of relate to and understand those pieces from Diana's perspective you know the fact that he they, they get to meet interact with his father I thought was fantastic mm-hmm. and I think he's my favorite I say new character because we didn't meet him in the last book you know but he's probably my favorite new character that's here. And Christopher Marlowe, what the, his character is very insipid, you know? I mean, that's mm-hmm. obviously the way he's supposed to be. And it's funny because it seems like everybody in his, you know, everybody from a historical standpoint seems to think that of Christopher Marlowe. He very rarely gets a good shake in yeah. historical fiction. But yeah, I thought it was great.
0: Vicki, what
1: did you think of this book? Did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it. Um, I, I tend to like time travel in general. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun. Um, and one of the things I found interesting in this book was that despite Matthew trying to change history, he couldn't. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of it's actually kind of funny, legends of tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't know there at some point they say that history wants to happen. So even though you may stop something from happening, like the ultimate Thing will, so, like, say you're trying to prevent World War One, so you stop Franz Ferdinand from being assassinated, but later on, something else will happen, and you'll still end up with World War One. Like, history wants to happen, so that's what that made me think of. Despite all of his attempts to save the witches and to change history for the better, it still happened. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting, especially because time travel is normally like, oh, if you kill a mosquito, then the whole world ends sort of thing right Right, like the butterfly, the butterfly. yeah right the butterfly, butterfly.
2: effect yeah. and i think that yeah the sound of thunder was this ray bradbury story where that happens you know he steps on a butterfly and it changes the outcome of the of an election or something but uh, and so it seems like her take on time travel is that sort of multi-verse theory which is that no matter what you do you're going down a different branching path but that the thing that's going to happen and i the terminator films sort of go that way and a lot of uh time travel science fiction goes that way where it's exactly what you said vicky where it's like does it matter if the skynet if the computers are going to take over the world they're going to just find a different way to do it you know if you prevented mm-hmm. them from doing an analog they'll go through the internet or something like that you know yeah.
0: there's an episode of, well it's not an it's like a couple of episodes of dr who that are like that too the waters of mars um, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what's in so uh, the, the actor that plays Isabel de Claremont is one of the actors in that episode. But oh, you're the doctor, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the doctor tries to change the outcome so that she ends up not dying. And then she still ends up killing herself at the end of the episode to preserve what happens with history.
1: And I love that it comes back to like it'll go back and forth between the present. There, there's not a ton of that. But when they yeah. do go to the present, they're looking for anomalies, right? Mm-hmm. So the locket um, that the artist makes, they find yeah. that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. Thomas Harriet Is it Thomas Harriot? His
0: that uh, Diana, at the very end, like her last, like, I'm leaving thing, she has the telescope. En- is it a telescope? What is it? I think it's a telescope engraved with who yeah. made it and who, um, who created it so that he will be appropriately accredited instead of the credit going to Galileo. Um, right. I really like those moments too. Oh, probably my favorite one I think is when Isabeau finds Philippe's note written in one of the books, or yes. hidden in one, their, their little game yeah. of hiding notes for each other. Um, i love those moments. I think it's a, you know I think it's hard, and we've kind of talked this, about this a little bit before in books that are written. Um, include a lot of characters and you grow to you grow attached to those characters in the first book and in the second book it's different I think those chapters do a nice job of kind of reconnecting us with our characters who are still in the present who are kind of making that connection because as they move into the future in the third book we have to maintain those like I feel like it's a good kind of segue from the past and or from the present in the first book to the past with elements of the present in the second book, back to the present in the third book.
2: Yeah, she does that in a very elegant way here in the book, um, to the degree that, from what I understand, just because of different mediums, that in season two of the show, and I haven't, I didn't get enough time to actually see it. From what I understand, is they actually have to go in and s- intersperse what people are doing in the modern time alongside you know it's not like they don't yeah. cha- change the story so much from what I understand but these these passages yeah. are interjected with what everybody was doing in the in the modern world at the same time
0: and creating a companion from the present and the past I like that I haven't watched the second season yet I bet it, I've heard really good things about
1: it though Marcy have a note about um how different Matthew becomes
0: yes I do In the first book, Hamish gives Diana a warning um, when he comes to visit them in in Madison. He says, you know, he's paraphrasing. He says it's going to be different when he gets back in in time. And Diana's like, well, it's going to be fine. Like, um, yeah, just super like he's going to he's still going to be my Matthew or whatever. And it's like three days (laughs) and he is reverting back to how he actually was in 1590 um and so hamish's advice becomes very and and something she reflects on several times in the passage of the book um diana was initially dismissive of it and then you know it takes almost no time she's like oh okay yeah he was he was maybe right and he says this one thing to her so it she he she questions him when he's like we need to get the widow beaten in here to start teaching you magic and she's like uh I think this is maybe not a great idea. And he starts talking about how, well, he lived it the first time. So he knows how things are like, and Diana's like, well, I'm a historian and it's my job to break down why things like witch hunts hunts and other like historical events, like the things that led up to these moments, kind of like a pressure cooker when it explodes, like things like that. It's my job to understand why these things happen. And he's like, it's going to be fine. He's just really dismissive of her. And he says to her, (laughs) And if you really want to behave like an Elizabethan woman, stop questioning me.
2: Uh, yeah, I wasn't a fan.
0: Oh my god! <laughs> like, yeah, I know he didn't just say this to my girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's. I mean, it's. I don't. It's it's shocking how quickly he turns from modern day Matthew to 1590 Matthew. I'm sure that that was pretty. I mean shocking but it also just reminds me of this was something that my mom taught me when i was a kid like you start to act like who your friends are right so and diana makes this observation too like he gets back in the past and he's hanging out with these people that he hung out with in the past and he starts to act like these people from the past um and so i hate it i hate it's it's very irritating because i want him to be like modern day matthew and not be a dirtbag but he's
1: not that matthew (laughs) (laughs) matthew exhausted me in this book i he was worse than in the first book in terms of like his mood swings and everything like i felt like the relationship for so much of the book was like pretty toxic like he's refusing to talk to her about everything he literally runs away Mm -hmm. when she tries to like talk to him and talk through their problems at some point um she's like she has a secret and she won't tell him and like one of her like part of her reasoning is is like well you have secrets too yeah it's not healthy Uh, i was exhausted by him in this like him becoming a jerk and then he went out with he started doing drugs well he started drinking people who were on drugs right (laughs) (laughs) which is awesome (laughs) (laughs) right so he comes back like high a whole bunch and uh i was just exhausted by him in this book well,
2: that's an nice interesting. Time. That whole piece that you're talking about is is kind of interesting because, and I think that's why I appreciated that there were so many characters in this book because they take that focal point away from him and their relationship because it's somewhat non-existent at points. You know, their relationship mm-hmm. is in it as it bore out in the first book, and I, I I couldn't tell at times whether she was purposefully. I do think you're right, Marissa. That there's a certain point when. She's trying to make a point of, you know, he has this kind of vaunted idea of what the past was like, you know, oh, this will be a nice quiet place where we can kind of hide out and it'll be fine. And everything was good. And yet in reality, the entire atmosphere of the place and and the, and the thoughts and feelings of the time that you couldn't escape are kind of seeping back into him. So I definitely think she's making a point there, but there's also a point where I wasn't sure she was maybe just taking the piss out of this idea that happens in a lot of sequels and probably more in movies and 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 tv and works like that than in books because often books are sort of written as series but you know when someone when writes someone makes a really successful thing and then they have to bring all those characters back and they're and they don't have a story in mind you know and so i always get irritated sometimes it's even when that's not the case you know they'll bring the character back and they'll have made all these great leaps and changes in the first book or in the first movie and then they come back and they are exactly the same as they were at the start of book one you know yeah. and it's yeah. it's highly irritating it happens often my wife and i were watching something last week and it was a sequel to something and it's like why can't why can you not do this why do we have to reset it's because you don't know how to tell a new story mm-hmm. and i think here she's almost mocking that a little bit you know um because he ultimately you know we do see changes and we we do help to understand his past but mm-hmm. it doesn't really make it less infuriating
0: right. <laughs> to sort of sit yeah. with, yeah yeah definitely I think that you know um and in terms of like the first book we see a lot Diana has to experience a lot of different things just emotionally in the first book so coming to terms with like being magic and the fact that she's actually been using it her whole life just hasn't really been like hasn't realized it Um, there's, you know, a greater exploration of what happened with her parents and with her family in general. And so I feel like she experiences a lot of like challenging emotional things for her and experiences some level of growth with that. And Matthew's kind of like steadily, like he, you know, he acknowledges that witches aren't garbage and marries one, but we don't, you know, just in terms (laughs) of like... (laughs) growth for his character we don't necessarily see a whole lot and I I feel like this book is a good exploration even though it is very exhausting Vicky even though he (laughs) I mean he's he experiences a lot of um, growth and we develop a new sense of the depth of his character and what it really for you know what it really means for him to be as old as he is and the things that he's experienced He does a lot of like coming to terms or addressing in his relationship with Diana, um, the grief that he experienced with Blanca and his child, which he didn't really, you know, like we acknowledged it in the first book, but there was no depth to it. Um, he talks about the grief that he feels in terms of having, having to kill Philippe, um, confronting, um, like the the feelings that maybe his the multiple miscarriages that his first wife experienced kind of how that's affecting him now that it's happened to Diana, and so I feel like we're in the first book we experience a different exploration of challenges for Diana. We get that same not the same, but we get more of a of a um, an exploration in terms of depth for Matthew, which is frustrating while it happens because he's kind of a dirtbag sometimes, but. <laughs> it's almost like
2: he's reliving it all for the sake of you know right. he he already made some of these leaps and changes but not with her you right know, yeah and how it applies to her and yes the fact she's a historian and and this is something that I think is one of the more unique elements of the book and you you had just touched on it before when she's having that discussion with him like hey I'm a historian I'm supposed to be able to study this from a perspective and have these insights that we have because we can look back and yet here she is living in the middle of it and realizing it isn't all that easy I mean it's not mm-hmm. like her perspective is completely changed but I think that element that adds a almost like twilight zone sort of feel to it mm-hmm. you know that you're sitting in the midst of all of this and you know the ins and outs and you can see exactly how I should be able to change this and yet again history wants to happen and it's going to happen because of how messy people are Mm -hmm.
0: the descriptors like the especially for Philippe the descriptors for Philippe were so good like I could see the character I could and I wanted to be near him like he was such an and I think you Nathan you you mentioned that he was like one of your favorite sort of side characters like the way that she writes his character is just so like intriguing and inviting. Like, I want to know him. I want to go to his house. I want to sit at his table during the feast. Like it's.
2: Yeah. He's a guy on paper when he was described in the, and not so much the first book but when you get him here, you know, initially he is the bullish father figure, right? Like mm-hmm. he's the guy and you're like, Oh, this is supposed to be one of the challenges he had to overcome. And then you realize there is a lot more to him and, and not, you know, and that's, that's a, t- that can be typical you know they they want to have the the kind of uh seemingly overprotective or or very rigid father oh but he's still a human guy but there's just she goes a step further and shows how that's just not exactly what's happening you know Mm -hmm. that it's about perspective so yeah i think and then it was very touching a lot of what i feel like the heart of the book a lot of times or or the most poignant moments in the book occur between he and diana or some of the Mm -hmm. other characters you know that um the story that's happening there that, you know, uh, before we get to the end of the book, you know, there, there's things she's working out there in that relationship with him that I think are really interesting.
1: Uh, there's at Saptor, that was just my favorite part, probably because also Matthew is less of a jerk right <laughs> through most of it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like I don't have to be really frustrated. We got to the,
2: the, the Jane Austen part of the story where he's <laughs> not a monster anymore. <laughs> But, but it's you know it's funny that they that you know we kind of mentioned that because and, and lord forgive me for mentioning twilight at all but <laughs> i remember when those books came out before the films were on and i had not read them and before it was very clear that i didn't know anything about about them at all and so when they come out and i had friends that were telling me oh it's like jane austen with vampires and then like after reading mm-hmm. a chapter or two of one of them i was like Jane Austen would Mm. kick your ass with her Regency quaffed boots if she (laughs) heard you say this, you know, whereas I think, not that I would necessarily compare the two, but a lot of what Harkness is doing in those segments feels like it owes a lot more to what Jane Austen was really doing in her books, you know, Um, and that she's weaving this in, that's not her sole intent. But I feel like it comes off um, pretty well, and they get a pretty good slag in there too about the Twilight books. I think I'm assuming it's a slag. At the, but it's a slag at a lot of things where she where, he, where yes. she's expressing modern vampire fiction.
0: Yes, I love he's that he's part. He's horrified when she's like, yes. "Oh,
2: off to a dinner and a date," and he's like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> I think she. I think the way she writes it, it says he was aghast.
0: <laughs> yes, that part was amazing. <laughs> um, there's a moment. When Diana and Matthew were getting ready to leave France, and it oh, it made me feel so many things, but it's when she's saying she's getting ready to say goodbye to Philippe. and she says, "Um, you will not be alone either, Philippe de Clermont. I'll find a way to be with you in the darkness, I promise. And when you think the whole world has abandoned you, I'll be there holding your hand." And Philippe says, how could it be otherwise when you were in my heart? Like I was, that was my leaving. favorite exchange in the book. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, even now, like it's making me hot just talking about it. Like I it just, there's so much depth of emotion written in that scene. Um, and it's, we do so, especially with Matthew, we do so much exploration and t- like with the, the grief that he feels in having to be the one that takes Philippe's life. Um, it's just so, oh, it's so deep. And it is so, oh, it's so sad, but beautiful. She crafts, she crafts images really well. I feel like it, in particular in this book, we see a lot of moments of grief with Matthew. And I feel like she does such a good job of crafting those moments so that you, it's almost like you're able to feel the grief with him. And when he, when he's sharing his loss of Lucas, like his guilt, his despair is so palpable and deep. And he says um, when he's talking about his relationship with Blanca and their repeated attempts to conceive and her repeated miscarriages, he yeah, says, the way
2: she said, he said that the way yes, she stated it.
0: Yes. After years of filling her with death, I gave her that's Lucas. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, that's such a powerful like when you're statement. Like,
2: no, that's yeah. After someone says that, well, how do you respond? It's like, wow, you are grizzled.
0: Yeah. I mean it, it oh that and like you can feel it, like the hope that he must have felt in that moment when he finally had a child that lived and then the grief after experiencing all of that grief with the repeated miscarriages to lose his his child again and then his wife shortly after like it's so it's hard to read and then even when he's like discussing his uh, his suicide attempt he says in that moment, he felt like it was like he was trying to give himself back so that he could be reunited with his family. And he says, for my sins, he, referring to God, he gave me to a creature who transformed me into someone who cannot live or die or even find fleeting peace in dreams. All I can do is remember.
2: With the middle book of a, of a series like this, you're usually trying to ramp up the stakes of the plot you know other books are off times mm-hmm. or again the time travel thing is almost like a lark right this is the one where we're going to send you on an adventure and the primary thing is to watch your relationship grow but that's not what this is about <laughs> really at all no. and it lingers on the grief of several characters to an extent that uh and i think this might have been why some of the initial reviews were like well it's really slow or it's just it it, it, it there's too much going on you know A lot of these characters are dealing with some form of loss, you know, Mm -hmm. and when we meet them, it's not for the purpose of getting to know them so an exciting thing can happen, it's getting to know them through their loss. You know, Mm -hmm. most of these people are, they're not defined by it, but it's the door by which we have a context for them, most of them.
1: Yeah. I wonder... If before he met Diana, if he still would have felt bad, I don't think he would have. Right. Like so if he had to time walk back then, like back to 1590 for whatever reason without Diana, without meeting her, I don't think he would really try. Right? Right. I don't yeah. think he would have. It just came down to, well, now it affects me.
0: Right. Oh, we've talked about that before. <laughs> we <talked> about that.
2: <laughs> this is an interesting thing. I I I've had this discussion with lots of people, you know, and that's the whole that's the whole thing with with the stereotypes and things like that is hating a, hating a quote unquote theoretical group that you never bothered to meet
0: mm-hmm.
1: is
2: uh, very easy. And of course, once you hate them, you don't want to meet them. And so you never will. But the minute somebody has a member, you know, I've, I've met mm-hmm. tons of people that were very adamant about disliking somebody for this reason or that reason. And then suddenly when that person was, became a close friend or your family member, then mm-hmm. things suddenly changed. It went out, you know, went out the window and it's like, which is, which is positive it's not negative that you know you change your hateful views but um yes so I think yeah yeah you're probably right like you'd like to think that maybe that would be the case but it is often true that people they once it does affect them once we're able to Mm -hmm. see uh that that most people have the are struggling with the same sorts of things and want the same sorts of things that we do it should be an obvious no-brainer but sometimes it isn't right the idea that witches aren't uh people and 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 by people i don't necessarily mean human but the they are beings that aren't worthy you know not only are they not worthy of respect or being alive you know we need to destroy them we need to actively destroy them
0: yeah yeah well and and matthew mentions this a little bit like he he kind of justified it to himself and that well as long as the vampires and the demons are okay we can sacrifice a few witches like but now it's not the case anymore. He can't make that justification because he married a witch. So. Right. It's and this- just like a process of rationalizing. Well, I guess if someone has to die, at least it's not this one person or this one group, or we're not affected. And um, somebody right. has it's- to be the scapegoat in this situation. So
2: she does have that that element of Doctor Who, where when they go into time, it isn't just about. Uh, here's a set of historical things you know so I get to slack off you know like I don't need you to imagine anything because you already know what uh you know Elizabeth in England looks like instead it's more like I want to jump in and and start messing things around and show you know and let's have fun there and so um it really comes through I let me ask you do you think that this book would have been as strong as they I mean it's hard to imagine without it but Do you think if it had continued in the modern day with a story that was already happening and they continue to look for the book, say across continents or something like that, or maybe even in another dimension, they didn't have the time travel angle. Do you think it would be as good?
1: Um, Go ahead, Vicki. I'm sure that she would write it really well. I just, I think that this is sort of her, like this historical thing is just so great that she can write because, you know, she's... um, historian so um i'm sure that she would have written it really well i just don't think i think that this is it would be better this way, the way we yeah. have it
0: yeah. i agree yeah. like i have confidence in our author um i think that she could write a really great story but i i, I agree i think the historical elements really enhance really enhance the story and I feel like I when you when you come into trilogies, sometimes you run into this situation where this it's like the first book is really great. The last book is really great. The second book is kind of, ah, it's all right.
2: It's like treading water.
0: Yeah. Um, and I don't get that at all with this book. I feel like the historical elements, the time walking, all of that stuff really enhance the story.
2: Yeah, point. I think that's what disrupts it. I think that's what allows, because I did like this a little bit better. And I think it's mm-hmm. all because of that. Because- yeah. We walk out of the other side of this book far richer in terms of the characters that we had even known about in the first book you know and and yet there's not a lot of um let's say there's not a there's a there's a lot of plot going on but it's not like the actual plot and the stakes get any higher than they were in the first book you know it's not like now the world is about to end uh, mm-hmm. immediately or something like that. You know, We don't have to introduce 10 new plot wrinkles. We're just starting to flesh out what we kind of were hinted at in the first book.
0: Yeah. Um, how did y'all feel when, she, when Diana like, was actually able to learn about her, her magic and, and the
1: introduction
0: of her familiar?
1: I love that. I love familiars to begin with. Right, like just that idea, um, of it, and I love that hers like on the rib, yeah, Um, and she's sort of like something that she has to tame, as well. Um, and that whole scene where with the rowan tree, right? I loved it. It was yeah. It's beautiful.
2: Well, and it was almost like when you get to those points, you suddenly remember, oh yeah, this is a fantasy book about magic, you know, because she's doing all this other stuff so well. And I started relating to the story on that again, that kind of sci-fi vibe of oh, we're messing, we're not we're messing with time, but we're we're looking at these things from different angles. And you sort of forget that, oh yeah, she's Uh, she is a witch that does can learn magic and I really and I know this was introduced in the first one and yet you're really seeing it kind of come to life it's right it's that difference between the academia there was magic in the first book Mm -hmm. but then there's here it is when it's uh you know we're encountering she's encountering witches at this point in time when these are some of the first witches to write their own spells right they're not just practicing what they previously known and that that kind of celtic not that nodding style to take that concept and then apply it to the magic itself Mm -hmm. and then the fact that the time travel element is sort of doing the same thing right like it's sort of nodding in on itself so I thought that she dovetailed those ideas together very naturally and so you never felt like it was swapping from here's this a little more fantastical like the dragon and and the familiars Mm -hmm. and all of that they just felt so naturally interwoven uh In much the same way that like when Philip Pullman writes his his Dark Material series, and you have these characters who have their demons on the outside and things like that. And they feel very plausible. The world still feels as if it exists in a in a real dimension.
0: Oh, I just I feel like there's a whole lot of magical symbolism that happens, particularly in that scene, like with the road. Like there's just a lot of things that are really significant to like the magical world that happened in that scene. It made me want to investigate. (laughs) I just want to learn more now and I think that's like I like that when I when I read something and it makes me want to investigate further what what is actually occurring in the scene like okay why is the row and tree significant in this situation why like I, I think that that's a good indicator for writing when you want to learn more about the things that have been written
2: yeah, I agree. I, when people walk away and say, I was confused or I didn't completely understand that, or with movies, you know, I, I what was all this about? I didn't understand it. And I said, well, I like that because for me, when you sit down to something and all of it is fed directly to me, it might be, hey, that was, that was a pretty good meal, mm-hmm. but there's nothing left to, you know, there, there's yeah. nothing left to explore. The things, the movies, the books, the, the, the shows that stick in my head yeah. are the things that sort of, that I don't feel like I'm done with them. You know, it's like- mm-hmm. I didn't get all this yeah which means I get to go back and try to get all of it
0: yeah explore like and even like in the second read I feel like you discover this a lot when you're uh, when you reread books like you run into things that you didn't remember before that it's like oh okay well I'm making this connection now that I didn't make before I yeah. feel like they did a lot of that in this book it's like okay well there's still <laughs>
2: And I think a lot of it pertained to the magic and the magic more in terms of how Diana was discovering herself, like reading the two books back to back again, realizing Mm -hmm. so much of like the character changes that happened to her in the first book are sort of metaphysically played out in the way she learns her magic in this one.
0: Yeah. So they make a comment several times about Diana lacking a sense of self preservation. And I feel like we see that several times in this book, but most especially with Kit. When retu- yeah, with <laughs> Kit. And they return, <laughs> they return from Prague like the same day. Kit's like, You wanna go with me? And Diana's like, Sure. <laughs> I was like, No, sister, no. <laughs> and then she almost dies. You know, if we're talking on. about.
2: Great lines to go back to Gallo Glass. Mm-hmm. They had that one point when she again her descriptions when she describes it, she says when she's talking about him come back she says Gallow Glass returns to Sporing Grass with two vampires and a pretzel. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yes, yeah, He's so he's so great.
2: But that one line, just the, it, again it's how much she can do, and I think that's what does tie her, and I think is what makes her work really good is some of the way she writes these characters. Is comparable to the writers who would have been writing at the time. You know that yeah. she that she authors the the that she sets the story, and so I like that she has that kind. There's a little bit of that Elizabethan, and if you're like later, that Victorian wit is sort of interlaced in there. You can tell that she has a very good handle on it. I think mm-hmm. there was one there was one character I wanted to mention only because it's in one of those cases where he seems like such a like a creation, like you're like, wow, she really went out there with that, kid that uh, the the uh, the character of Rudolph. Oh yeah. Like yes. From everything I can ascertain from history, he was just about as wild and weird as he is described in this in the story. Yeah,
0: yeah. He yeah.
2: He has a portrait that someone <laughs> painted of him made completely out of vegetables.
0: Nice. I
2: have to send you guys. Let me. See send it to you over like uh yeah the boat and it's like it looks almost like the green man or something because it's like cabbages and, and <laughs> turtups and stuff i will send it you guys want to put it in your show notes or something you can yes. it's utterly um it he is apparently the uh but he was the one that had like from my understanding he had like hedge mazes and and and, and like wild animals and things like that so uh and in fact he might be even toned down in the book, in the oh, book a he little. he
0: sounds like a fun guy <laughs> Um, do we want to talk about our favorite quotes? So, uh, with my quote, Philippe is saying this to Matthew, once they arrive at, at Septor's, at Saptor, he says, giving a woman, your whole life is meaningless without giving her your whole heart as well. Um, and I like that just for like what it represents with our characters that Matthew and Diana do a lot of work in their relationship in this book, um, Diana pushes Matthew several times, um, and asking him card questions about their relationship. And at one point it's like, do you want to be with me full stop period? Like, like, and so I really like what this represents in time, because at this point he's saying like, I have given her my whole heart. I have given, and he hasn't. Um, and even at the end of the book, you know, they've made a lot of growth in their relationship. But even at the end of the book, someone asks him if he's going to acknowledge Diana as his wife in the present. And he doesn't ever give a definitive answer either. And we're assuming that that's in part because of fear for her life and for his children because she's pregnant again. But um, I like that just, I think it. I think it's a good sort of representation of what happens in their relationship in this book. And so that's why I like that. Next.
1: Sure. I had a couple. Um, So this one was said, so Jack, the little boy that they kind of adopted, um, has nightmares at night. Sort of like flashbacks, I think. Um, And when Matthew's comforting him, um, Jack says, all the monsters look like ordinary men tonight. And Matthew says, they often do, Jack. And that's so true. I mean, like, the worst monsters are... Men or well not men like in general, but right but humans, you know? Like they um, you know, even though this book is about demons and vampires and witches, and we don't really have that in the real world, but that's it's the truth. Like humans can be monsters themselves. Right. And we always I feel like and we saw
0: this in there's some books that we read where they this is a quote, but it's like you always expect evil to look evil. Right. And it doesn't a lot of times it's fairly innocuous looking
1: what book was that
0: i want to say it was in the bargainer series
1: right that's does what callie
0: I... say that about one of the does callie say that about the i don't remember the name of the bad guy
2: yeah and it's kind it's kind of like a common sort of thread yeah. through lot. Yeah. i remember in um in lord of the rings you know when they meet aragorn for the first time i think it's frodo who says you would think that you know an agent of the enemy would uh, uh, look fair and feel fouler <laughs> mm-hmm. than, than Aragorn does.
1: Another quote I had was, revenge is never an adequate remedy for loss. And Philippe is saying this regarding um, Galaglass because Galaglass got revenge on the per- person who killed his father. Um, but I thought this was a very interesting thing to say because it's, again, it's something that's very true. You can get revenge on something, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna feel better about it. You still have to cope with the underlying feelings of hurt or in this case loss that happened. Uh and finally, this one was kind of funny. Um though she was a vampire and I was a witch, we had reached unexpected common ground when it came to the idiocy of men. And I enjoyed this because it was about these like really smart philosophers, right? Mm That like that just it made me laugh because you know it's the what were they called again? The school of night. Yeah. Like this the like these really smart people, these scientists and scholars and stuff. And they're just like, there, there it is. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um as so that just made me laugh.
0: Yeah. Nathan, did you have a favorite quote? I
2: had a couple of them other than the pretzel one that I shared about. <laughs> some of them are just her her writing. But you know, yeah. one of those quotes being you tell me that magic is just desire made real. Maybe spells are nothing more than words that you believe with all your heart. Now that does sound like something you find on a fortune cookie. But that idea that mad, you know, magic is just desire made real and how it plays out in the story. Again, I feel like that's the kind of the it's a it's an easy thought to catch hold of and see how it applies, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that magic is just desire made real. If you think about it, that's all magic has ever been you know mm-hmm. ever not just in this book but in in how we even think about it in terms of fantasy
0: yeah
2: and uh so i thought that was a very interesting encapsulation that on it's on the face of it at least me because i'm cynical i kind of <laughs> rolled my eyes the first time i read it and then i thought more about it and thought, no that's actually you know that that makes sense you know yeah it has a sort of purity to it in the same way that like tolkien would describe it or something like that uh oh, <laughs> there's the hold on um yeah i trust my wife's judgment that's what philippe says about granny just before all hell breaks loose
0: yes (laughs) that was good that one was a great one uh
2: and then this one when uh it it was goody also she said we face a dark future if children stop asking questions susanna Mm
1: -hmm.
2: which again i think there you know we like we talked about there's a there's a grain of truth in there and um <laughs> this one i thought this was funny considering her historian background my experiences thus far had me planning to throttle the first tutor historian i met upon my return for gross dereliction of duty <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i think i highlighted probably half of the things that she wrote in this book like my kindles right just- it's like yeah, i, you, I like, could just, just probably so read many great things <laughs> yes yeah yeah Do we have any final thoughts about this book?
2: Just that I'm really glad that I did reread it, you know, and that this gave me the opportunity to reread it because I think this is a book that gains quite a bit on the reread.
0: Definitely. Mm -hmm.
2: Which is not to say that it was lacking something on the first read, just unexpected uh, richness that uh, that I got the second time through.
0: Yeah. I completely agree. I, as much as I love like wibbly wobbly time travel things like that, I was really apprehensive the first time I read this book about going back into the past, just because this era that it's set in is not typically some like my favorite. Um, and the first time I read it, I remember just, I loved how it turned out. And on the second time around, like it's even like, there's just so much richness that I'm, that I feel like I I didn't catch the first time that I caught the second time. Look, like I, I feel like I'm going to have to read it again. <laughs> like,
2: yeah, this wasn't a comfort read. This was a discovery read for me again, the second time through.
0: That wraps up Shadow of Night. Join us next week. We will be discussing the last book in the All Souls trilogy, The Book of Life by Deborah Harkness. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you, Nathan, for joining us. It's been a pleasure to discuss this book with you.
2: Thank you. I had a great time. And yes. again, um, check out the Phantom Galaxy uh that Arissa and Victoria will be on this week.
0: Yeah, we're excited. We're excited. Now, if people want to find you, can you relay one more time your social media sites and all that sure, information? Can,
2: you- you can find us on Facebook at Phantom Galaxy. We're at phantomgalaxy.podbean.com. That's our current website. And you can find us on Twitter where it's Phantom Galaxy with an F, F-A-N-T-O-M, Galaxy, uh, because the other was already taken. Nice. So you can find us <laughs> over there and uh, we, we tweet things out. We will be, tweet, uh, we'll be tweeting out this episode when it goes up and uh, the episode Julie's are on and everything else we do as well.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Yeah, thank you. I had a blast. It was, it was great to read this, and it was great to uh, discuss it again.
0: Thank you for listening to Literary Quest. We hope you enjoyed our episode. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we can be found at Literary Quest Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. You're also welcome to share your thoughts and ideas with us via email at literaryquestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.